Well, there you go. Talking heads from the 1980s, if you remember it, were a road to nowhere. And yet many of the themes we've just seen in Hebrews 11 picked up on a city that they're going to. Is it just nowhere? And of course, the song has a special pathos and irony when it's sung by elderly people. Elderly people who probably now, 10 years later, many of the people singing the song are dead. And for a lot of people, that's what life is about. It's a road to nowhere. Most people have set out on the journey of life without a clue what the destination they're heading for is. I think we know what we want to achieve in life, what we want to happen on the journey. We want happiness, we want comfort, we want security, we want some sense of purpose, and we try and find those things, but most people just don't know where they're going. They're on a road to nowhere, on a road to nothing. So famously, for instance, Johnny uh, Wilkinson kicked that glorious drop goal for England to win the 2003 World Cup, their only World Cup. Do you remember what he said afterwards? This is what he said about his thoughts that night. But what happens afterwards? What happens when we all leave here? What happens when I wake up tomorrow? Or Bob Geldof, just after he'd raised £50 million in live aid. Some of us are old enough to uh, remember that in the 1980s. A guy in the crowd shouts out to him as the the closing bars, the closing song are going on. Is that it? And in a Times interview in 1998, Geldof said, I just couldn't get that question out of my head. He called his biography, his autobiography, Is That It? You ask me if I'm fulfilled, says Geldof, and I don't know what that means. We're on a road to nowhere. And yet the claim of the Bible is that there is a city, a paradise, that is not just in our mind. The Bible is an account of how God is taking people not to nowhere, but to a certain future. And in the book of Hebrews, we've been studying this, what is probably a sermon to first century Jewish Christians over the last few weeks. In the book of Hebrews, we've seen that that future that the Bible calls rest, a future living in God's presence, enjoying the security of his love in a perfect new world forever, that future is utterly secured by the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Though we have rejected the God who gives us life and promises us rest, he sends his one only son, Jesus. And we know it's secured by Jesus because he has given up his life on a Roman cross. His blood was shed there for us to deal with the way that we've treated God and one another, to cleanse us so that we're perfect, to enjoy a perfect new world. And then he's risen from the dead and he's gone now to be with his father in heaven. And every day he is ensuring that we keep going with him till he takes us home to be with him. Not nowhere, but but there. And where we're going to end up this morning is actually in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Have a look at Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. If you've still got a Bible there, this is what the writer says you should do having read Hebrews 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. In other words, where you're supposed to end this morning is thinking, I'm going to stick with Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus because faith in him transforms actually not just our future, but our present. Because what we're going to see in in Hebrews 11 is that if you are certain about your future, then actually it frees you 
in the present. And so the first thing that the writer does is tell us at the beginning of Hebrews 11 what what faith is. What is this faith that we we need to stick with, this faith we need to have? Look at Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Literally, faith is the substance of what we hope for. Now, we we saw last week that hope in the Bible is not like hope in the world. So yesterday, I was hoping it was going to be sunny, like the forecast said, so I could mow the lawn. Fat chance, by the end of the day, left it too late. Maybe you've got some more serious hope. Maybe you're facing a, a medical appointment, and you're hoping the news will be good when you go and see the doctor. Hope is something we don't know but would like in the future, isn't it? That's hope as we use it. But hope in the Bible is something certain in the future that God has promised. It's certain because, well, if you look down at verse 3, look what happens when God speaks. The universe is formed at his command, and what is seen is made out of what is invisible. That's a powerful word, isn't it? Now, our promise is simply a word from someone. And if the person who speaks a promise can create the world through his words, we need to trust his promise. And so faith is the certainty that what God has promised in the future, he will give me. I can be certain about that. And here's the thing. When you're confident about your future, you're actually more free to live in the present. Kids work like that. You see, kids, they don't really think much about the future, and if they do, it's always certain, isn't it? So, for instance, your, your four-year-old or your three-year-old, he, he, he doesn't say or she doesn't say, oh, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to be a train driver. I'd like to be a train driver, um, as long as I do well enough at school and get through the train driver test to, and, or maybe in the future we will have driverless trains Um, If the union will let that happen, I don't know. Maybe I won't, but I'd like to be a train driver. That's not the way the kid works, is it? The kid goes, I'm going to be a train driver. Going to be. Future. Certain. The future is certain in a child's mind. And what the Bible is saying is we can be certain about our future because God has promised it, it to us in Jesus, and we need to put our faith into that future promise. And what the writer then does is give examples of heroes from the Old Testament who put their faith in God's future promise in the first half of the Bible. And it transformed their lives. I mean, the first thing we see is that by faith, we're free to please God. And that's what those guys, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, show us. Uh, Do do you see this? There's a repeated idea. If you look down at verse 4... By faith, he was commended as righteous in in the middle of verse 4. And you'll see Enoch, he was commended as one who pleased God at the end of verse 5. And Noah, at the end of verse 7, is the heir of righteousness. In other words, all these guys had a righteousness, a right relationship with God that was then lived out in their lives actively. So in Genesis 4, the, the fourth book of the fourth chapter of the Bible, Abel, because he knows God is for him and he is true and good to his word, offers God the best of his crops. Whereas brothers Cain, he's not so sure, so he gives God a second-hand lamb. The result is Abel's offering is accepted. 
or, or Enoch is described in Genesis 5 as walking faithfully with the Lord. In a world that hates God, Enoch's willing to trust that God is for him and he is good, so he walks with him, in relationship with him. I was chatting to a guy, an older guy in our church, a very older guy in our church family actually, this week. He said, I'm not afraid of death, but I really don't want to go through that dying process. Well, Enoch didn't. In Genesis 5, the Lord takes him straight to heaven. Or or Noah, most famously of course. Noah gets a, a word from God. Is he going to trust what God says about his future? Because God has said, Noah, mate, you need to build a very big boat because I'm going to flood the earth and kill everyone. Can you imagine how hard that is for Noah? Can you imagine what his neighbors are saying? He's building this boat in the middle of the desert. (laughs) What are you going to do with that, Noah? You're going to need a pretty big trailer to get that to the seaside, mate. But in the end, Noah had faith in God. He trusted him. And the result was he and his family were saved in the ark and everyone else was condemned. You see, faith in God means that you live a life that can please him. Have a look down at how it's described in in verse 6 down there of Hebrews 11 and without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him seek him not rewards those who live up to his standards or rewards those who do the right religious ritual or rewards those who are better people no those who are seeking relationship with God that's what relationships about isn't it it's about faith it's about trusting someone i mean if if you're in a relationship here you know say you're in an intimate relationship with someone every time you go to bed you're trusting them aren't you you're trusting that they aren't actually a homicidal maniac who's going to smother you during the night what is relationship based on it's based on promises where we trust one another that's what marriage is about Trust in promises. I'm going to stick with you through thickness and thin. And so here, these four guys, they please God because they trust him and therefore they live a life in obedience to him. You see, faith means we can please God. It frees us to do that. But faith also means that we have a certain home. Look at verse 8 with me. Here's the next character. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Now, Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to him, look, you're 75 years old, I want you to leave Ur, where you live, and you're going to go to Canaan, which you don't know, and you're going to live there. Oh, and by the way, you're going to camp, which frankly is terrible news in my book. You're going to camp. In fact, you're going to camp for a very long time. You're only going to camp because I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants, but not for 400 years. And what does Abraham do? He pitches his tent. And we can read in verse 10, why does he do that? For he was looking forward to the city without, with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In other words, Abraham thought, I trust God, he's going to give this land to my descendants. There must be something bigger and better to come from God, therefore I'm going to act on what he has promised. More than that, because Abraham and Sarah knew good was, God was good to his word, when God said to them, Abraham aged 100, Sarah aged 99, I'd like you to go and have sex and make a baby, they went, okay, God can pull this off. And the result we read in verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. 
Long after social services would have said, I think we need probably to stop the intercourse section and look at the adoption option, Abraham and Sarah, through God, produced a child by the promise. Now, why would they do that? Well, look at verse 13 again. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. You see, when Abraham died, he didn't, well, he only, he only owned his own burial plot. And he'd only had one kid, not loads of descendants. But he knew that when God promised something better for the future, that was certain because God was for him and he was good to his word. Look at verse 16. What's their attitude? Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. You see, Abraham knew that he was looking forward to a heavenly home to rest with God forever. And you see in verse 16, it's not that just Abraham was looking forward to going to this glorious new rest. It's that God is not ashamed of welcoming his people into it. You see, it's not that this glorious rest is a place where St. Peter is at the gates asking awkward questions like he does in all those jokes. No, God the Father is at the gates welcoming his people in, not ashamed of them, despite the way they've lived their lives, despite the way they've treated him and other people. Because the Lord Jesus has died to cleanse them so that they can go in. Now, I I used to love those home improvement programs. Um, Someone was telling me about one recently. It's an American one. And it's not, you know, Lawrence Lowell and Bowen doing dreadful things in your sitting room with satin drapes or Handy Andy with the MDF, if you're old enough to remember changing rooms. This is an American one where they, like, send you on an exclusive holiday for six weeks while they rebuild your house and add an extension And then they put like two new cars on your drive and they pay for your children to go through college and then they get your favorite like media star, sports star to come and open your new home and show you around it. And I was thinking, I just want to get on this show. The reason though that people are perpetually improving their homes, upsizing, getting the the extension, redecorating, is that we're meant for something better. A better home, a more secure home, a place that is truly safe, more beautiful, more comfortable. The place that God has prepared for us, the place that Abraham was looking forward to, final rest in a perfect world with him. Now, if you know that is your home and that is certain because it's a free gift of God through his son Jesus, that then transforms your feeling of security today. You see, you don't have to find heaven on earth. You don't have to make your home the place that is totally perfect. You can relax about that. Your circumstances matter less. And actually, the final thing that you find about home is that death is going home. Because we see next, faith means that we can live through death. Do you see that with Abraham in verse 17? He's got this one son, Isaac. But verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. How do you do that? I mean, it's hard enough trusting your children to God without being asked to sacrifice them. 
oh, look what the writer says that Abraham believed in verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And if you'll know the account, Abraham goes through with it. He, he takes him up the mountain, he lays him on the altar, he's there with a knife over Isaac, and just at the moment he's about to bring it down, God calls to him and says, stop! And he provides an animal, a ram, as an alternative sacrifice. But, but the reason that Abraham was willing to go through with it, says the writer, is he reasoned that, well, death's not a problem for God. If I have to kill Isaac, God will bring him back to life. He'll always keep his promises to me. It's a little picture, isn't it? We know that that's true. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was sacrificed for us, God raised to life three days later. Now, death is not the end for those who trust in God's promises. Jesus' resurrection proves that. And so, by faith, Isaac blesses his children, Jacob and Esau, because he knows that even though he is dying, God's promises will go to them in the future. Jacob, when he's dying, blesses his sons and his grandsons. Joseph, when he's dying, says, look guys, take my bones, put them to one side, because God's promised we're going to the promised land, and you'll need my bones. I'd love to be buried there in the future. I know God will pull it off. My death is not the end of God's promises. No, my death is about going home. Um, Sleepers in Seattle's a bit of a weepy, isn't it? I, I like nice weepies. I like a happy cry at the end of a film. And you'll know in Sleepers in Seattle, Tom Hanks' character is widowed. He's an eight-year-old son. And he's woken up in one scene in the middle of the night by the boy who's having a nightmare. And once he's calmed down, he asks his dad this. Where do you think mum is? I don't know, Hanks replies. And, and then in that way that kids do, the, the, the boy says, do you believe there's a heaven, dad? And Hanks replies like this. I used not to. But now, well, since your mum died, I think there must be an afterlife. But but faith in heaven is not like hoping it it might be there because someone you love has died. No, No, faith in God is a promise that is certain because God's word he always keeps. He is powerful to keep. And we know he has proven that through the death and then resurrection of his son, Jesus. So we know death is not the end. And if you have a God like that who is for you, faith means you can overcome fear. Now, that's what Moses shows us. Do you see how we get this repeated idea of fear? They're not afraid in verse 23. And Moses is not afraid in verse 27. Now, have a look at verse 23 with me. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That doesn't mean, by the way, that Moses looked like he was going to be a a member of Mensa. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry, you won't need to. um, It just means they could see that God's promises were attached to this kid. And have you ever tried to hide a baby? I mean, this section of the room... These are the guys going, hey, we don't have to hide babies anymore. These are the babies they used to hide. And over here, we've got the baby hiders. And it's a nightmare, isn't it? I mean, they're small, but they are noisy. 
You can't hide babies. And for Moses' parents, this was risking death because Pharaoh had said all newborn Hebrew children, baby boys, should be killed. But, but they weren't afraid because they knew God was good to his words. So they trusted him. And Moses, he, he grew up to trust God in the same way. So, so have a look at verse 25. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, Moses was a prince of Egypt, but he'd rather be known as a child of God. Moses lived in a palace, but in the end he chose to live with tents amongst God's, in a tent amongst God's people. Moses had wealth beyond you, your imagination in the Egyptian royal family. We're still digging that up today. But in the end, he chose to depend on God in the wilderness, picking bread off the ground. Why? Well, because he knew this world was short-lived, and its pleasures were largely about rejecting God, and he had a glorious certain future that God had promised him. And so we read in verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses thought, well, I'd rather be mocked for God's promises and trusting them now because of that glorious, certain, beautiful rest that God has promised me. Now, apparently we're all affected by FOMO. This is not some strange disease. It's fear of missing out. It's a real problem in the social media world. You see, because of social media, we, we know online, you know, how many friends we've got and who's friends with who and what parties they're going to. And we post shots on Instagram of what holidays we've been on. And then we show our shot of our promotion at work. And we, we're celebrating everything all the time. And the result is that we're thinking, oh, no. That's not my life. I haven't got the promotion of work. And that doesn't look like North Wales, the palm trees. And, and I don't have many friends. In fact, some have started unfriending me. And I, I'm, I'm missing out. But, but Moses, he's not afraid of missing out on the world. But because he knows he has the promises of God. You see, what are you afraid of missing out on? Are you, are you afraid of missing out on status? Maybe you're afraid that, that people will look in on your life and think, well, that's pretty small and pathetic. God says, if you trust me, through my son Jesus, you're my precious child. And no one can take that away from you. Maybe, maybe you're afraid of missing out on wealth. You know, everyone else's loft extension, hey, I've got a big one, looks bigger than yours. Well, their car looks shinier than yours. And God says, well, don't be ridiculous. It's all rotting. And if you trust in Jesus, there's, there's riches beyond compare. You're going to live in this glorious new creation. It's going to be all yours. You want for nothing. And maybe, maybe you're afraid of missing out on love. Desperate to hear that, that I love you. And God says, you know I love you. How do you know I loved you? Well, even when you hated me and rejected me or ignored me, at least, I sent my one and only son to die for you. I gave him for you. You don't need FOMO if you've got the promises of God who's for you. No, no, no. Moses isn't even afraid of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land. Uh, by faith, verse 27, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger because he saw God 
the one who is invisible, the one who keeps his promises, and he thought, he is far more powerful than any human king, so I'm going to keep going with him. See, faith conquers fear. That's why, as we read on, though it must have been a terrifying thing when the angel of death swept into Egypt, as he does in the Exodus, Moses and the Israelites still killed the lamb and daubed its blood round the door and waited to see what would happen. And they were saved. That's why they walked through the, the Red Sea. Can you imagine that with the water piled up on either side and all Moses is doing is holding up a stick? Can you imagine walking through the Red Sea thinking, I wonder how long that's going to be there? Egyptian army thundering behind you? It's, it's why, if, if you know the, the story, they march round the walls of Jericho. It's the most ridiculous siege technique in the history of the world. Let's go for a sing-song around the walls and have a big shout at the end. You can imagine the guys on the walls of Jericho going, what on earth are you doing? That's not going to work. Idiots. And the walls came down. It's faith that trusts God's promises and acts on his word. It's why the prostitute Rahab, who you think was morally outside of God's people and was within the walls of Jericho, thought, that is the true God and those are his people. I'll hide these spies and trust him because his promises are going to come true. And so she was saved. See, faith conquers fear. If you know a God who is for you and has proven he is for you in his son Jesus, well, you don't need to fear. And you need to know that if if you're going to follow him because actually faith as well helps us cope with suffering. And suffering often comes as we follow this God. I, I love verse 32. Verse 32 of Hebrews 11, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. It's as though that the writer's got to this stage and he's, oh my goodness me, I've made it about 25% for the Old Testament. I've been going on for ages. I better cut to the chase here. I'll summarize the rest. And he talks about these guys who through faith conquer kingdoms, administer justice, gain what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of flames. And you're thinking, of course they did. They're the big heroes of the Old Testament. Just go look again at, at these guys. Gideon? Gideon was hiding in a well when God tried to get him to take on the Midianites. And he used any excuse to get out of it. Barak was a wimp. He had to hold the prophetess, Jeph- uh, prophetess Deborah's hand to go into battle. Samson, he wasn't a wimp, but he was basically an alcohol-fueled, anger-management-issue womanizer. Jephthah, he was an idiot. He made a ridiculous promise to God that resulted in him killing his own daughter. David, well, he was an adulterer who tried to tidy it up by committing murder. I suppose Samuel, he might have been okay. Now, now these aren't great men and they have a great God, a God who we read on raised children from the dead, a God who could keep people trusting in him even though they suffer extraordinary things. Why do you see at the end of verse 35 there, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. In other words, they believed, like Abraham, when God said, I'm going to take you to be with me in paradise forever, he would raise them from the dead to enjoy that. So they thought, in between living now in this life and giving in and 
selling out for comfort and trusting that God, I'll trust him by faith. Now, faith isn't going to bring you the easy life. If you you trust in God, if you've got Christian friends here and you're not yet a Christian, ask them, faith doesn't bring you the easy life. Trusting in God does not mean that you won't lose your job. Doesn't mean that you won't have terrible life-threatening disease. It doesn't mean you won't die young. But it does mean that as you experience the sort of problems everyone in this world experiences, you are certain that your present is secure in the love of the God who's pledged himself to you in his son, Jesus, and your future is going to be with him forever in a glorious paradise. Uh, what's, what's the world's answer to suffering? I, actually, I had the world's answer to suffering this week. It came in my News Review magazine. Here's, here's what the world says. Because the world says, if, you've got, if you're on a road to nowhere... That's what the world believes. If you're on a road to nowhere, then suffering is always bad. So what do you do? End your life now. If this is all there is, and it looks painful, end it now. That's, that's what the world says. So this week, you can now buy a suicide pod. Anyone see that? Created by Australian euthanasia activist Philip Nitchard and Dutch designer Alexander Bannock, the Sarco, short for sarcophagus. You get in it, you press a button, you fill the thing with nitrogen gas, it doubles the coffin, you're done. See, the world says if you suffer, you've got no hope for the future, just top yourself. But but faith in God says, no, I have a glorious future that enables me to live through the present. So so my Uncle John, uh, when he died of prostate cancer, I went to see him a, a few weeks before he died. Uh, and, I, and I said to him, John, how do you cope with the pain day by day? And he said this, the journey is difficult and painful, but the end is glorious and certain. By faith, you can cope with suffering. Now, as I end, what, where does this chapter take us? Well, have a look at the last couple of verses, 39 and 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what has been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that together with us they would be made perfect. And something better in Hebrews is always something about Jesus. And here is where this chapter ends, that faith in God is proven by the work and person of Jesus Christ. He is the one you need to fix your eyes on. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, and you're thinking, wait a second, wait a second, I'm, 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 I don't really want to please God, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm afraid of people around me, and I, I want my home to be nicer, and it's, you're talking about heaven, and I'm, I'm not sure that really that turns me on that much, and frankly, I don't want, I'm suffering and I, I can't cope. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he shows you that God loves you and God is for you and your future is certain in his hands. Only faith in him will free you. And if you're you're not yet a Christian here, what you need to do is look into this person of Jesus Christ. We'd love to help you do that here at Chessington Evangelical Church. There are a couple of things you might want to do. You could take away a copy of one of the accounts of Jesus' life, a gospel. There are some there at the back. 
um, some copies of the gospel just in the corner, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. It doesn't really matter which one you take. I've got a copy of John's gospel here. Why not take one of those? Now, over the coming weeks, we have a, a course coming up called the, the King and I. It's happening on, on four Monday evenings. It's an opportunity to explore why is faith in the God who makes these promises worth having. You won't be asked to sing, say, pray, or do anything. But you can bring any question you want and ask it of the guys running the course. Why not come along for an hour and a half uh, over a piece of cake and a cup of coffee, see if this God is worth choosing to follow. Because in the end, faith in this God will deal with and free you from the issues that you face now and guarantee you a certain future with him forever. It's got to be worth looking at, hasn't it? By faith. Faith in who? Faith in the God who has given his only son for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, so he can take us home to be with him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, the one in whom all your promises are yes. We thank you that we can know that you love us because he died for us. Thank you that we can know that you are for us because you gave him in our place. Thank you that we know that death is not the end because he rose again. I thank you that we look forward to a certain home with him forever, with you in a perfect new creation. Our Father, wherever we are with you, whether we're those who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but are struggling to trust you, whether we're those who are certain we are not Christians, please help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, that we might know more why your promises to us are both so trustworthy and so good for his name's sake. Amen.